I'm excited to be joined by Timothy Alberino today, the explorer, filmmaker, and author of the book, Birthright. Timothy, thanks for joining me again. Hey, thanks for having me back on. So the Younger Dryass is, it refers to an abrupt return to ice age conditions after a prolonged period of warming. And this happened between 11,600 and 12,900 roughly years ago. So we're talking somewhere between uh, 9,600 to 10,800 BC. The Egyptian records of legendary Atlantis seem to point to the same event. Uh, can you hit on that real quick? Yeah, so among these cataclysm legends that we find all over the earth, um, the most famous is, of course, outside of the biblical narrative, would be the the Atlantean cataclysm. Uh, we all are familiar with, um, most of us are familiar with the the story of Atlantis, which comes almost exclusively from Plato's Critias Dialogue. And in the Critias Dialogue, Plato is relating a conversation between Solon of Athens, his his relative, actually, Solon of Athens um, and an old Egyptian priest of the goddess Nath from the city of Sais in Egypt. And this priest informs Solon that, uh, first of all, he tells him that the Greeks don't have any history that's hoary with age. In other words, the Greeks are like children. They don't they don't their memory does not penetrate penetrate very deeply into the past. Their records don't go, bo- don't go back that very far. Whereas the Egyptians kept copious records that went into the deep, deep antiquity, into, into deep prehistory before the cataclysm. And, and the priest informs Solon that, that there have been many cataclysms. And then he begins to relate the story of Atlantis to Solon. And um, as he unfolds this story of Atlantis, um, uh, he he tells he he tells Solon that Atlantis not only not only was Atlantis not only do the Egyptians have a record of the destruction of Atlantis the Egyptians uh, have a reckoning of when Atlantis was destroyed it was destroyed overnight in a in a terrible cataclysm nine thousand years before their present age and and we know we know that Solon visited Egypt in six hundred BC. So the Egyptian priest is saying that according to the uh, reckoning of, of, um, of the ancient Egyptians, Atlantis was destroyed sometime around 9,600 BC. Now, that, that seems to correspond with, with the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. I mean, which, by the way, the dates given for the hypothesis are approximate. So you're talking somewhere between 11,600 and 12,800 years ago or or if, or if we really want to round it off between 12 and 13,000 years ago and so um sometime that puts us sometime around 10,000 BC and that's that's right in the neighborhood of where the Egyptians reckoned of when the Egyptians reckoned that Atlantis was destroyed in this aqueous cataclysm so you have this interesting synchronicity between the legend of Atlantis and the younger Dryas uh impact hypothesis and I find that intriguing. Um, the uh, uh, Atlantis, when when Atlantis was destroyed, what most people probably don't realize about the story of Atlantis, according to Plato, when Atlantis was destroyed, it wasn't this peace-loving uh, utopia. It was an aggressive expansionist empire, and it was encroaching. It 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 had already conquered seven islands and and held sway over three continents and it it was encroaching on the kingdom of Athens according to Plato and Athens was the only kingdom that could that could stand up to Atlantis that could rebut Atlantis and 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 um and hold hold the tide back of their conquest and so uh, Atlantis and Athens were locked in a bloody conflict when this cataclysm befell the earth and both atlantis and athens were swept away in the waters of a great flood so um 
these are details that a lot of people don't realize. It's not just a cataclysm that destroyed Atlantis. It seems to be a global cataclysm um, of which uh, Atlantis was, was one, of the, one of the victims. It, it was utterly destroyed in a very short period of time. And um, what's interesting is that the priest of Nath begins, his, begins to tell the story of Atlantis to Solon by describing how the gods the Olympian gods, had apportioned the earth amongst themselves. In other words, they divvied up the earth amongst themselves. And they chose wives from the daughters of men. And he says that Poseidon, this, the priest of Nath, says that Poseidon, for his part, for his allotment, he took the island of Atlantis. And he chose to wed Clato, the daughter of Evanor. And he copulated with Plato, a human woman. So this is a god um, inseminating a, a human female. And she gave birth to five sets of twin hybrid sons. Now, other ancient manuscripts that, that, uh, that relate the Atlantis legend, such as there's an there's a ancient Tibetan manuscript, allegedly called the Book of Dizion, that... Uh, that Helena Blavatsky references in, in her book, The Secret Doctrine, which, which describes the, the kings of Atlantis as giants. And that uh, obviously syncs with the biblical narrative and was, was more specifically the Book of Enoch. Um, so you have these hybrid kings ruling over the rest, of the, the, the rest of the human populace on these seven islands and over the, the continents that they conquered. And uh, it was this... It was it was what I call it, it was an empire of the gods on planet Earth in which the gods, each of them had divided the earth amongst themselves. And they were each of them ruling over their own little kingdom, established their own little kingdom and and um, produced their own hybrid progeny who became the kings of their kingdoms. And this this, I believe, was a global phenomenon, which would have meant that there would have been a universal civilization all over the earth with the basic knowledge, the same basic knowledge, the same basic technology. And I think that that, that syncs with the megalith phenomenon that we see all over the earth, because the, the megaliths, the, the really large one, I'm not, the, the, the really impressive ones, not Stonehenge and not some of these other smaller megalith megaliths that, uh, that could have been devised by primitive people. I'm talking about the really big ones, the really impressive megalithic constructions, the foundations of Baalbek, the walls of Sacsayhuaman, and so forth. Um, it, it, and even in China, there's some absolutely mind-blowing megaliths in China that most people are not familiar with. And they all seem to share the same features. Those, they all seem to have those nodules on them. Um, and those nodules are sometimes inside of the the... the structures are not always on the outside of the blocks um which sort of negates the idea that they were that they were placed there for certain things certain features that 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 would have been convenient on the outside of the blocks there's all kinds of theories regarding those nodules but um the point is you see the same kind of stuff the same kind of cuts made in the rock um all over the earth it seems there, there seems to have been a, a ubiquitous technology that was being used to cut this hard rock. And so that bespeaks a ubiquitous, a, a universal civilization. And I think this, this notion of an empire of the gods um, solves that question of, of how it is that we have megaliths all over the earth that appear to have been made by the same civilization, with the same technology. And that is, I don't know whether... Atlantis is veritable history or not. I mean, it, it may be veritable history. Uh, Plato may have been relating um, the history of an actual city that existed in the antediluvian world. But at the very least, I'm, I'm convinced that Atlantis represents, that Atlantis is an allegory of the golden age, Zeptepi, as the Egyptians called it, when the gods walked among men. The first time when the gods lived among men, and and copulated with their daughters and set up this this empire it, it's almost a one-to-one -one match the story of atlantis to the story related in the book of enoch the book of enoch 
describes these godlike beings, these extraterrestrial entities that descend to the earth. They descend to the summit of Mount Hermon. They're called the Watchers in the Book of Enoch and indeed in the Bible. They're also designated as Watchers. And these Watchers, they, most people are familiar with this story now, they, they, they chose wives from the daughters of men and they copulated with their wives and their wives conceived and gave birth to hybrid giants. So we have this parallel right away with the story of Atlantis and uh, the book of Enoch. And, and these, the book of Enoch doesn't say this uh, exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't say this in exact terms, but it, it insinuates it. It insinuates that uh, the watchers did exactly what the Olympian gods did in the Atlantis story. They divided the earth amongst themselves they they appointed their hybrid sons to rule over their individual kingdoms but see they were they were it was a unified empire so each of the gods so to speak were ruling over their own kingdom in this empire of the gods and and that that persisted in the earth um for some time until according to the book of enoch uh, according to the book of enoch god incited the giants who would have been the kings of these kingdoms, he, he incited the giants to war with one another. And so there was this global uh, Nephilim world war happening in the antediluvian world where the giants were going at each other, not just, you know, um, you know, people always imagine giants. They think of the Disney, the, the big, dumb Disney giants with clubs over their shoulders and, and drooling from the mouth. That's not what we're, talk, we're talking about. We're talking about demigods. We're talking about the hybrid offspring of the Watchers. And the, these, these entities would have been exceedingly intelligent and, and incredibly powerful um, physically and, uh, and, and in terms of their intelligence. And, and they would have been equipped with the, with the armaments of, of this, these extraterrestrial entities. They would have been certainly equipped with their knowledge um, because the, the Book of Enoch says that the Watchers taught mankind basically the implements of civilization, just like the Egyptians believe happened in Zeptepi, that the gods taught mankind, they civilized mankind. Um, this is kind of the idea in the story of Atlantis, too, because Poseidon founds the city of Atlantis and 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 builds this this empire, this civilization. And so across the board, you have the gods civilizing mankind, building these kingdoms. And, and by the way, uh, the the. Uh, Plato's in, in, in the Atlantean legend, according to Plato. Uh, one of the first things that the gods did after they apportioned the earth amongst themselves is they is they built they had temples raised to their honor and they instituted sacrifices. So uh, I think that's exactly again what the Book of Enoch insinuates about the Watchers that the Watchers wanted to be worshipped, they wanted their sons to be the kings of their of their respective kingdoms, and and this lasted for some time until until these the the empire was fractioned and the and these giant kings and their kingdoms engaged in a world war and i think it was a technological world war i think that it was um that this war there's hints of it in in the in the mythologies and and written records of many ancient cultures, including the ancient Indians and the ancient Indian epics, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, uh, specifically, that talk about this epic war that took place between gods, demigods, and mortal men. And there, and it wasn't. It, this wasn't just a conventional Bronze Age war where they were going at each other with swords and shields and spears and so forth. Um, these Sanskrit texts describe remarkable technology that was being deployed. Um, Vimanas, for example, these, these Mercury Vortex engine flying machines that uh, were being deployed in these conflicts and had, you know, were equipped with, with advanced armaments that are reminiscent of modern missiles or uh, direct 
directed energy weapons. Do you think this was the ancient Indians, obviously, worldview of just the overall golden age? Or was was it more uh, relegated to their region, the the wars that they talk about and the technology of the Vomanas? Um, I'm sure that, well, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if in the, if, if, if in the Indian epics we're looking at a regional conflict or if we're looking at a world conflict. I mean, that's a good question. Um, but as you know, each culture will regionalize things that are clearly global in scope. For example, a cataclysm, uh, cataclysm that destroyed a certain people in the in, in prehistory. Um, and then you find out that this other culture that's on the other side of the earth has a very similar uh, cataclysm mythos. Well, then you can then then you can um, you can I think assume then that they're they're describing the same global cata cataclysm, the same global cataclysm that destroyed both of their civilizations at the same time. But but these you know so things tend to get regionalized so. Um, from the perspective of each ancient culture. So, but that's a good question. I'm not sure if the Ramayana and the Mahabharata are describe a regional conflict or one that in, engulfs the entire world. It's as they knew it, perhaps. It's really incredible to see the depictions of, you know, these Vamanas. I mean, it's basically, you know, again, these are ancient depictions of ancients flying around in what looks like craft, right? And I just saw the other day, uh, a researcher posted a photo, again, this is at least probably a thousand years old, I'm guessing, of an ancient Indian depiction of, and it's in a temple somewhere in India at one of these sites, of the ancients literally riding what looks like a bicycle uh, with wheels mm -hmm. and spokes and everything. Yeah. And uh, so it's incredible. And then I wanted to ask you, like, a lot of the ancient Indian temples, I think they're on average... Uh, dated really no more than a couple thousand years old by archaeologists, uh, which is not nearly as old as what we would believe the pyramids are, Great Pyramids or the megaliths of, of Peru. Yet, uh, there's a few sites such as it, I think it's called Barabar Caves and mm -hmm. elsewhere in, in India, that to me is some of the most mind-blowing megaliths I've seen. It features absolute precision laser-like uh, kind of rock-cut temples straight out of straight out of a single rock right and and yes. there's the one at barabar caves which is literally 3d in dimension it very it looks a lot like um this uh what you'd see in peru where there's these false doors that are multi-layered right um but i mean precision cut do you think those might predate a lot of the temples we see yeah i I, generally speaking, I would say that the most impressive megaliths, again, th these ones that are displaying uh, ex extremely precise cuts in very hard rock, the ones that utilize um, extremely large stones, um, not the primitive megaliths, but the really, really impressive ones. I would say that those megaliths collectively date to somewhere around 10,000 BC. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of them seem to be aligned to certain celestial phenomena um, that that archaeoastronomers have dated some of some of these monuments um, based on this phenomena. I have a friend, for example, in Cusco, who's uh, an archaeoastronomer. Uh, his name is Andres Adazme. In fact, he he's, he he appears in my show. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. And uh, and Andres has done some work in Cusco, and, and as you know, Cusco has some of the most impressive megaliths on the planet, including Sacsayhuaman, which is only a mile outside uh, of the city. Really, it's it's in it's within the city limits of Cusco. And um, based on the certain alignments with the Southern Cross and and other things, other celestial events, the Milky Way, um, Andres uh, has hypothesized that the the megalithic city of Cusco, not the Inca city of Cusco, the pre-Inca megalithic city of Cusco was founded 
sometime around 10,000 BC. And I actually go through this data in my in the first episode of uh, of this series. And 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 I concur with Andres. I think he's correct that not only the megaliths in Cusco, Cusco, I would guess that the megalithic foundations of Baalbek probably also date back to 10,000 BC, thereabouts, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 BC. In other words, somewhere in the in the vicinity of the younger Dryas impact. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply the comet impact event uh, that created this global cataclysm and that, that would have universally destroyed all of these civilizations and, and, and reduced most of what they built to rubble, except maybe the megalithic foundations that are left standing to this day. Now, as you know, cultures, later cultures, when they discovered these megalithic foundations, um, they attributed them to the gods or to the or to the offspring of the gods. Surely the gods must have built these these walls or this foundation because look at the size of the stones or they must have been built by giants. And so what did these cultures do? They built on top of them. They wanted to inherit the works of the gods. And then also just in a practical sense, why wouldn't you use those megalithic foundations as the foundations of your new building or you or your new temple? Um, there, you're not going to build anything better than that. So you might as well build on top of it. You might as well incorporate it into your temple, into your palace, or whatever. And that, and that is, of course, what these what these ancient cultures did. These these post diluvian cultures that that arose in the earth after the cataclysm. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I remember being in Cusco and seeing exactly what you're describing. You're walking downtown and you just, you know, you, you see these uh, nice, what you know, Spanish looking buildings and you scroll from top to bottom and you realize the bottoms of these buildings are absolutely prehistoric megaliths, mortarless precision. Yeah, like a, a different, a different brain built the bottom of this structure than the top of it. A different level of intelligence, a different level of technology. And it's crystal clear in Cusco. Cusco is one of the best examples because in Cusco, you've got at least three different cultures uh, involved in the constructions there. Uh, you have the earliest, which would be the megalithic. Then you would have, then you have the Inca, which the Inca were very, very good stonemasons, really, really good stonemasons. But they weren't as good as those who came long before them. The ones that I believe laid the foundations of Sacsayhuaman, laid the foundations of Ojantaytambo, laid the foundations of um, Machu Picchu and some of the other megalithic sites in Peru. And then, of course, you have mixed into all of this, you have the ugliest and uh, least impressive constructions, which are the Spanish constructions. They simply they simply disassembled the other constructions and then built their cathedrals and so forth. And by the way, we've, we've mentioned this, I think we mentioned this last time on your show. There've been, there've been many documented uh, earthquakes in Cusco. And during a few of these earthquakes, almost all of the Spanish constructions would crumble to the ground. Some of the Inca palaces, what were left of them would crumble to the ground. But those ancient megalithic structures, they don't fall because they were literally designed to withstand cataclysm. 
to withstand extreme seismic activity. I want to let you know about our megalithic marvels of Peru tour coming this October 2nd through the 12th, 2023. This is going to be the expedition of a lifetime, a 11 day adventure to the heart of Peru, where we are going to explore the amazing megalithic ruins uh, in the Cusco area. And we're also gonna learn about the amazing Inca empire. We're gonna see all the major sites like uh, Machu Picchu, Pujante Tambo, Sacsayhuaman. But then we're gonna visit uh, probably 20 plus what I would call megalithic gems, sites that you may have never heard of before, but that are equally incredible. And so space is limited to about the first uh, 25, I believe. You can go to megalithicmarvels.com slash tours to get all the info and to register and reserve your spot. And I really hope to see you there. Not only does it predate the technology of the Inca, it's also far superior in some sense to to what they were able to do now again the inca were a very very impressive culture but i don't believe that they built mm -hmm. the foundations of sacsayhuaman right I and wonder, they never claimed to yeah they I said wonder, giants built them the inca actually yeah and i've heard yeah i've heard you say that before i've heard some others do we actually have like script or writings that actually say spell that out or is it more oral tradition no the inca didn't have any writing the inca had quipus which was the system of knots um and um the inca they did have legends though and when the spaniards arrived to cusco and they beheld these walls um they the spanish themselves thought they must have been built by giants or demons or some supernatural force because they were, I mean, you've been there. They're, they're just mind blowingly impressive. Uh, and, and, and what we see today is only a fraction of what was there when the Spaniards arrived. Uh, the walls were almost twice as high when Pizarro arrived. Um, the, when they would inquire of the natives and today, to this day, if you go to Peru into the Andes and you talk to the Quechua people, the old Quechua people who still, who still remember the legends and you ask them who built the walls of Sacsayhuaman, they're going to tell you the walls of Sacsayhuaman were built by giants or they'll tell you they were built by the gods or they were built by the offspring of the gods or the Veracosha. Um, you're going to get some variation of, of those things. But in most cases, what I've heard is the, is the giants or the Veracosha or a combination of both. And um, so that's, you know, Quechua was the language of the Inca. And so these, these Quechuan-speaking peoples, their, their legends go back to the Inca, and, and some of them pre-Inca. They're, pre, they're even pre-Incan legends. And, and so um, any, any Incan king, at least in my mind, any Incan emperor that that would go through the, the, the immense effort, the trouble to build those walls, let's be specific, at Sacsayhuaman, would surely have stamped his name somewhere, somehow. This glorious work that was accomplished, you would want people to remember that it was you who did it. And yet, we know the temples... Uh, were the, the palaces that were built by the Inca, who built them and, 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 and who they were built for. That's not the case with Sacsayhuaman. It's guesswork. Archaeologists guess. They assume that, that Sacsayhuaman was built by a particular Pachacutec, by a particular Incan king. They assume that, that um, Machu Picchu was built by a particular Incan king. And Machu Picchu certainly was was much of it was built by the Inca. There's no doubt about it. But again, just like the streets of Cusco, just like the megaliths in Peru and other parts of Peru, uh, the Inca built on the foundations, on these megalithic foundations, because they believed that this was the habitation of the gods. Um, Machu Picchu, in, in the, the, the word in Quechua, and it escapes me right now, Ijampu. Machu Picchu was called Ijampu. 
by the natives. Inijampu means the repose of the gods or the resting place of the gods or the abode of the gods. That's what the native people thought about Machu Picchu. The gods lived here. I mean, obviously they would think that, right? Well, isn't that what we would expect them to think if they stumbled upon these these incredible megalithic stones? They would have thought the same things that, that, that we think today. How could you have cut this? How could you? It would have taken 20,000 men to move this stone up this mountain or something. Who could have done this? And the answer was clear to them, the gods or the offspring of the gods. The Veracosha must have built this or giants. And that's what they thought. And, and by the way, it's the same all over the earth. I mean, that, that's, that, that's the case with all of the native people around the world who live in the vicinity of megaliths. I wanted to ask you about Jill Palmer and uh, kind of get your take on Egypt a little bit. And then I want to end with asking you about uh, Mars, which uh, will be fun. So obviously the Geo, Geo Palmer movement's really taken on steam. I mean, it seems like every time I make a post or video about Megalus, it's like the top comments are always, this is Geo Palmer. Um, which, you mean ancient concrete. Right, ancient concrete, um, you know, which is kind of where they say they ground down the rock and turned it into the slurry and poured water on it and put it in these molds. Um, and while maybe there, I, I guess I want to get your take. How do you, where do you stand with Geo Palmer versus what I would call, you know, precision machine type tech, like we see in Peru or Egypt, where you see literal core drill holes and laser like sock cuts? How do you reconcile the two? It might have been a combination of all of those things, just like we do today. We use cement for certain things, but then. We'll also use cut stone. Uh, we'll use granite when we want to do something really nice. We'll cut, we'll use cut granite. We'll cut it with obvious width. We obviously will use diamond saws and and uh, hydraulic saws and all kinds of uh, um, modern tools to cut really nice blocks of stone, pink granite or whatever. And so just as today, we'll use the materials that are convenient and we'll use different materials based on the pre prestige of what we're building. If we're building a monument, for example, we're gonna try and make it as regal as possible. Um, I think they did the same thing. Um, and so I could imagine them using a geopolymer, um, but at the same time, clearly they were cutting st these, these stones. They were clearly cutting some of these stones. I, I don't think there's any doubt about it whatsoever. If you've gone anywhere in the world and put your hands on some of these megaliths, um, you can even see the cut marks. In Egypt, you can see them on the stones. In Peru, you can see them on the stones, on particular stones. Um, there's even one up in Ojantaytambo where you can see they were cutting through the stone and they stopped. It's really remarkable. And it's hard to explain it any other way, unless that was done in modern times with the diamond saw and, and, and nobody knows about it. Maybe archaeologists were trying to cut it, move it out of the way. I don't know, but I doubt it. I highly doubt that that was the case. It appears that, you know, in the midst of all these other stones that were being dressed and that were being finished and polished, you have a stone there that that clearly has this, in my in my estimation, has a has a straight line cut saw. It looks like a saw blade, and it just stops. So I think they were clearly cutting these stones. Now, with what kind of technology, I don't know. Um, and then I would also add. I think that they were melting the stones. I think that they were able to melt the stones and make sort of a molten stone um, composition that they could mold. And one thing we know for sure today, even though archaeologists have not yet contemplated this as they think about the construction of, of the megaliths, but we know today that you can take a parabolic lens and you can melt rock. just focusing the rays of the sun. 100% for sure you can do it. You don't need high technology. You don't need electricity. You don't even need manpower to do it. All you need to do is to be able to make a parabolic lens and make it out of gold or make it out of brass, some kind of a, a, a shiny metallic substance. And if you can make a parabolic lens, you can melt stone. And you can pretty much burn through anything. Um, there's... I've seen uh, documentaries uh, that were made in the last, certainly in the last decade, which they're, in which they're experimenting with parabolic lenses. 
and uh, they I remember seeing this this one I, I wish I could remember to give him the, the attribute but it was this this young man was in a was in a laboratory and they had a parabolic lens on the on the roof of this facility and they had a beam of light coming down the, and you couldn't see it you had to like spray water and then you could see it and all it was was sunlight that's it it was just sunlight but it but it was focused into an intense beam and you and again you had to spray it with water with a mist of water to see it and anything and i mean anything that you passed through that beam of of light that focused sunlight was instantly set ablaze or melted and he they were trying all kinds of stuff as soon as you would put a, a stick you would just pass a stick through it boom the stick would go up in flames you 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 take a piece of rock and you put it under that focused sunlight and it melts metal anything it just it just is it's it's amazing what focused sunlight can do and again you don't need any technology to do it all you need is a parabolic lens and know how to focus it so i think that and by the way you can use that you can use that focused sunlight as a laser to cut through stone and make straight cuts through stone. And I think that that the antediluvians, not not the not the ancient Egyptians, not the Inca, not the Aztec, um, not the Mesopotamians. I'm talking about the people who lived before the cataclysm. I think that they were using the power of the sun to melt and cut stone. I think that they were focusing parabolic lenses and and they were using it as a basically as a laser to melt and and cut stone. And you can use it and all you have to do by the way, you can move this apparatus anywhere. It's you don't you you don't need a humongous parabolic lens. You, you it could probably be carried by two or three guys. And so if you're cutting stone up in a quarry on the side of a mountain, you can bring this parabolic lens up there as long as you have a clear view of the sun and you can position it and cut the stone right out of the side of the mountain, which is apparently what they were doing. And that's one of the hardest parts of this whole procedure of cutting these stones and then dragging them and placing them is not cutting them on site it's extracting these blocks from the mountainside let's see it i mean from my untrained eye that that seemed that would seem to be the most difficult part of this and then of course moving it but but getting the big block out of the mountainside to begin with i mean how do you get the saw how do you cut the back part of it and they're extracting blocks out of these things they're not like extracting little pieces that are broken up they're literally pulling blocks out of the side of the of mountains and quarries. And um, I, that's always baffled me. Like, okay, I guess you can explain that they were using primitive saws or whatever to cut these stones and with sand as as a, um, a friction and, you know, all the conventional explanations, but how the heck did they get it out of the side of the mountain, out of the bedrock? Um, and a parabolic lens explained is a is one potential explanation because you can bring it up there you can move it around it's very mobile you can position it however, however you need to you can slowly move it and keep it aligned with the so that the rays of the sun are hitting it and you can watch that cut just like we would today with a with a hydraulic uh saw or with a laser and be very you can be very 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 precise with those cuts and then it also explains you know, some of the phenomenon that we see on the blocks, that the edges of a lot of the blocks seem to be melted. And I don't know if you've seen this, but in the streets of Cusco, I've probably mentioned this, you know, last time we were talking uh, about the megaliths in Peru, but but this seems to escape a lot of, of people's attention, but I find it to be really fascinating. In the streets of Cusco, um, you have, as you said, you have just these beautiful megalithic walls everywhere around the plaza of Cusco. And if, and there's parts where there's big blocks are missing underneath. And 
and where the blocks are missing underneath, you can run your hand under under the block that was on top that's still there, but the, the block underneath is now gone. So you can run your hand along the ridge on the bottom and you'll feel a, a little ridge line. There's a little ridge line. It wasn't cut exactly. It was it was sort of like marshmallowing over the side of the block below it. So it was like it was pressed together. Not exactly cut to fit flush. It was like it was pressed together, like like if you took two pieces of, of dough and smashed them together. That's how those blocks fit together. That little ridge line, it I mean, they're not going to cut that little ridge line in there with a saw. That little and it's on all it's on all the blocks that are that are that fit together like that. This little ridge line. And that's not a, a design feature. That's a result of the way that these rocks were placed together and, and the, the mechanism that was used to do it. And I think that those rocks might not have been entirely solid. Those stones may not have been entirely solid when they were pressed together. So, so there's another theory that, that postulates that they were putting chunks of stone into a mold and then focusing these lasers using these parabolic lenses and melting the rock and, and basically making it a molten substance. And then they could, they could shape the rocks and they could press them together. They, sh they could shape these stones and then fit them exactly how they wanted to. And so we know that you can do this with a parabolic lens. I mean, this is not a, that's not a theory. That's a fact. You can do it with a parabolic lens. So the only question is, did they? Did they know about that? They had parabolic lenses. The, the Inca were, were able to craft huge circular discs of gold and silver and bronze. All they would have had to do was make that disc concave and, and then polish it. And they could have focused the, the rays of the sun and used it to cut rock. Now, did the Inca know how to do that? I don't think they did, but they had the technology to do it. But did they? the question is, did they have the knowledge? They had the technology, this simple parabolic lens, but did they have the knowledge? Did they, did they know that they could do that using a parabolic lens? I don't know. I, I don't think so. I don't think the Inca knew how to do that because if they did, the Spanish would have certainly found out and copied that technique. Why wouldn't they have? If the Inca were using some advanced technique to cut stone, the Spanish would certainly have adopted it in the building of their cathedrals, and they didn't. Their cathedrals are are ugly in terms of the stonework compared to what the Inca were doing, which means that the Spanish, they couldn't, they that the Inca could not replicate what was done in the megaliths. Because if I'm a Spaniard, I'm an ar archaeologist. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm an architect. If I'm a Spaniard. And I'm an architect, and I arrive to Cusco, and I see the walls of Sacsayhuaman, and I see the uh, the exquisite stonework uh, at Ojantaytambo and 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 the other places in the in the Cody Concha and so forth. What am I going to do? And the Spaniards had architects to build their cathedrals. What am I going to do? What's the first thing I'm going to do? Because we're all flabbergasted. All uh, of the Spaniards were flabbergasted by this stonework. What's the first thing you're going to do as an architect? We need to find the people. We need to find the masons who did this. We need to learn this knowledge. And furthermore, we need to employ or, or, in, or enforce force these Incan masons to build our cathedrals like this. Why wouldn't you do that? Of course you would, especially when there's earthquakes and, and their stuff falls down, but the other stuff doesn't. Of course you would have. And the, and the reason why they didn't is because the Inca didn't know. They probably said, hey, we're the masons who built these walls. And the Inca said, those were the Veracocha who built those walls or giants built those walls. So uh, nothing else makes sense to me. Nothing else makes sense to me. Architects, those Spanish architects were not stupid. They were remarkable architects. I mean, the cathedrals are, are in, in Cusco are inferior to the megalithic constructions, but they're by no means um, simplistic buildings. They're very elegantly built uh, cathedrals. So these were skilled architects, Spanish architects. And um, 
And so that tells me, that demonstrates to me that the knowledge to build the megaliths was not present when the Spanish arrived. Otherwise, it would have been co-opted. Certainly, certainly would have been co-opted. My God, could you imagine the cathedrals that could have been built in Europe mm. with that knowledge? Even the even surpassing the beautiful cathedrals that still stand today, even surpassing um, if they could build them like the megaliths are built, it doesn't make any sense to me. You don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't just forget or lose important knowledge. A culture doesn't lose knowledge that's really important to it. That knowledge is passed on until it's no longer of any use, until it's exhausted its utility. Only then is that knowledge forgotten. The only thing that can bring such an utter and sudden uh, forgetfulness of, these important, of this important knowledge from the past would be an utter and sudden destruction of the culture that built these edifices. So whether it's a so-called face on Mars, I think in the Cydonia region, or the various photos that have appeared on the internet of, of what looks like very ancient, very weathered structures, pyramids, do you believe there are ruins of megaliths on Mars? And if so, were these possibly, you know, again, the watchers, if they descended to Earth, did they also come to Mars and uh, did they create these things somehow? Of course, this is pure speculation, but I do believe that that there are megaliths on Mars. I do believe that there are structures on the moon and under the moon. And I would say also in the interior of Mars that there's probably some underground stuff going on there. I think that Mars, that there was a civilization inhabiting that planet and that it was absolutely obliterated in some kind of a cosmic catastrophe. And and the same might, might, might be said for nearly all the planets in our solar system. There seems to have been an ancient cosmic cataclysm that was unbelievably destructive, that, that laid waste to, to Mars and maybe some of the other planets in our solar system. And, and I personally believe that that cataclysm was the explosion of what was likely a planet between Mars and Jupiter, what the Bible calls Rahab. And um, that explosion, let's just imagine an, an, an entire planet erupting, exploding in orbit. It, 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 would, it would just absolutely devastate everything in our solar system. It would bombard the planets with... Um, with the shards of this planet just bombard these planets, with meteors. And what do we see when we look at these planets, when the ones that don't have an atmosphere and we can see the surface, they look like they've been absolutely bombarded, such as Mars. And um, perhaps the Earth looks like that as well beneath the oceans. And if you were to remove the, the terrain as it is on Earth, you might see the same kind of, of phenomena in terms of that, the cratering. Um, do, you, do you think the explosion of Rahab, so maybe it it literally takes out life on these other planets, and then does that correspond to possibly, you know, the gap theory where maybe the Earth, there was pre-demic life, and with the fall of Lucifer or this explosion, it knocked out, you know, it brought desolation to the Earth. And then that's where we see in Genesis 1, 2, maybe this recreation. I believe that. I believe that nearly all of the planets in our solar system were once inhabited, if not all of them. They may not have been on the orbits that they are today or the distance from the sun that they are today. They might have been pushed out from a cosmic explosion that occurred in our solar system, the destruction of Rahab, the explosion of that planet between Mars and Jupiter. And furthermore, I believe that this was a result of a pre-Adamic conflict, that the, the, the breadcrumbs of this conflict, I believe, can be found in the, in, in the Bible, in the narrative uh, of the Hebrew Bible. And... I talk about that in my book, Birthright. I, I 
tell the story of, of what might have happened according to these insinuations in the text. And it really is quite amazing to think about. Um, but certainly Mars, I'm fully convinced that Mars was inhabited. We know that now that Venus could have sustained life. We know that now. Um, and so something happened in my estimation, something catastrophic beyond imagining happened in our solar system sometime in the very, very deep past. Fascinating to consider for sure. Uh, to everybody listening, watching, make sure and get a Timothy's book, Birthright, to go in-depth more on that. I think next time we do an interview, I want to really focus in on this topic. It's just fascinating to me. Uh, Timothy, thanks for your time today. What's the best way for people to follow you, find your book, and keep up to date with all your research? The best way to follow me is on my website. Sign up for my mailing list. Um, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Timothy Albrino, and you, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, just Timothy Albrino. I'm the only Timothy Albrino on Twitter and Instagram, as far as I know. And that's the name of my YouTube channel. So th those are the best ways to track with me. You can get my book on Amazon.com. <laughs>